This is episode number 68, Identifying and Working Through Traumatic Experiences, with Alabanji Adenarani. Welcome, my name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, struggle, and suffering in achieving your fullest potential. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to make a brief announcement and invite all of our listeners to leave us with feedback regarding our previous episodes. One of the best ways that we've discovered to do that thus far is to leave a review on iTunes or contact us directly through social media. Let us know what your favorite topics were, who were your, some of your favorite guests, and who are the guests that you would like to hear from next. Now, let's get back to our guest. Are you aware of the stories you tell yourself? He said, I try to look at it from the biosocial perspective. That's essentially understanding where they got the narrative in the first place. So, this narrative that you currently have, is it something that you've always had? Or is it something that you've discovered for yourself through life experience? When you are faced to deal with a traumatic experience from your life, what type of story do you tell yourself? Do you look at the situation as if it happened to you or for you? Without further ado, please welcome Alabanji Adenarani. Welcome back to another episode of the Overcoming Odds podcast. Today's guest, his name is Olabanji Adenarani. He's a licensed psychotherapist specializing in family systems. Ola, thank you so much for joining us onto the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. I was very fortunate to be introduced to you by a mutual friend of ours, Kahila, a couple of weeks ago. And so I'm glad that we're able to finally make this conversation happen. Absolutely. It's very, very humbling. And I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. The way that I wanted to start off this particular conversation is I remember you and I had this that first phone call, which I was, yes. I was making a joke. I said it could have lasted five to six hours because I was so captivated by your story of going through the different phases in your journey, but also the work that you're doing right now, which a lot of it has to do with PTSD and how to deal with unsolved trauma. So the the way that I think this conversation will be best to start off is if we kind of start off at birth. And that is what happens to a child's brain when they're exposed to traumatic events at birth? And then from there, dive into kind of the development that the brain goes through, especially in cases where you have unsolved trauma. I see, I see. Well, that's a huge, huge question to start off with. And uh, I, I appreciate uh, just diving right in. Mm-hmm. Well, the brain is very, very um, complex. And it has uh, what we call plasticity. Plasticity is the ability of the brain to kind of um, adapt, even in times of trauma or uh, severe stress. Mm-hmm. Um, the brain has the capacity to maintain this plasticity, I think, 
uh, until the age about of about six or seven. Mm. After this stage, you know, it becomes a little bit more difficult to adjust or adapt for the brain to adapt uh, to certain traumatic events. Although children are very resilient and the brain is very resilient, um, up to a certain stage, uh, the brain can adapt to certain stressors. Now, there are different kinds of trauma, mm-hmm. and uh, these traumas affect the brain in different ways. It can uh, stimulate your fight or flight systems, and if not addressed soon and effectively, uh, this constant stimulation of the fight or flight system could uh, prove dire if not taken care of. Uh, and I mean fight or flight in terms of, you know, constant anxiety, constant stress, uh, constant chaos. Um, all these factors do contribute to the brain constantly in this hypervigilant state, stage or this hyperarousal stage or, you know, constantly finding ways to avoid stress rather than confront it. Mm-hmm. Um, as the child begins to grow, uh, there are certain stages that uh, could possibly help or hurt uh, adjusting to trauma. Uh, children tend to be egocentric, and their egocentrism happens at a certain stage as well. So if trauma happens uh, at a certain age, uh, and if that stage is in egocentrism, it could keep the child from really understanding the uh, complexities of trauma. And egocentrism is essentially a child not being able to see a different perspective mm. other than their own. Um, if trauma happens during this stage of egocentrism, they could probably start seeing those events as something that they're responsible for. You know, since they have haven't developed the ability to see uh, beyond uh, their point of view. Mm-hmm. So when this happens during the egocentric stage. I can start looking at the events as solely my fault or something that had to do with me or something that um, I was responsible for. And, you know, like I said, Oleg, if this is not addressed, this child can grow up thinking that they are responsible for all the uh, conflict or difficulties in their lives if they're stuck in that egocentric stage. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, child's parents get divorced at an egocentric stage at 21. This is a very traumatic event. And they keep replaying that event as something that they're responsible for. So they go into relationships thinking, okay, every negative thing that happens. Their fault. Precisely, precisely. Mm-hmm. So that's just an example of, just a small example of how trauma can affect the brain. Mm-hmm. And depending on what stage the trauma uh, occurs, it would affect the child differently. And not only that, actually, it depends on the nature of the trauma. So there's PTSD and complex PTSD. Mm-hmm. Now, PTSD could just be an event that occurred, one event, two events spaced out. Uh, when a child grows up in an environment that is constantly uh, triggering, um, it can lead to complex trauma. You know, just this long-term um, Exposure to pain and suffering over a long period of time can lead to complex trauma. Mm-hmm. So it depends on what kind of trauma 
uh, child experiences. It depends on what stage of their life they experience this. It depends on the environment. There's just a lot of factors to consider when mm-hmm. it comes to trauma. Could you tell us a little bit more about the different types of trauma that people get exposed to so that in case anyone who's listening, they might be able to identify the type of trauma that they're going through? And if so, how how do you... Obviously, it's a lot more complex than what I'm trying to ask right now. But essentially, how do you come to a point of recognition where you were able to possibly solve or start working on or on getting through some of those traumatic experiences? Well, um, that is actually a great question. That's a very, very good question. And one of the things that I would encourage uh, people to kind of look into is the ACEs test. And the ACEs test is kind of adverse childhood experiences survey. And it outlines various um, experiences of trauma. Now, I think generally people think of trauma as, you know, something that occurs when you go to combat mm-hmm. or when there's some kind of natural disaster. But there's so much more to trauma than, than, than meets the eye. There's also trauma from being experiencing neglect. There's trauma from witnessing um, divorce. Mm-hmm. Obviously, physical abuse, child abuse, there's verbal abuse. But there's also trauma that you can experience from losing someone. Uh, there's trauma you can experience from being ill. There is um, illness-induced PTSD uh, that can occur when you've been exposed to illness for a long period of time. That can also prompt symptoms of trauma. There's uh, PTSD that, that can be experienced uh, from growing up in a household that has an alcoholic parent, for instance. Um, one doesn't actually have to experience the physical abuse, but there's also the emotional aspect of mm-hmm. having a parent that's um, experiencing uh, challenges with alcohol or drugs or any kind of substance use. So that's an example of other traumas besides what we are usually um, familiar with, which is combat or something that has to do with sex or physical abuse. Mm-hmm. There's actually more to it than just um, what we are familiar with media it's very interesting i remember when you and i originally spoke one of the things that i was curious about was when you experience trauma and i think you mentioned this in one of your points was it really comes down to understanding the narratives and the stories you tell yourselves Absolutely. during that during that moment so where where do you start with that how do you you know for for me looking back at my experience and trying to understand how I've been able to develop an inner dialogue that is encouraging and that shows me that there is a possibility for X, Y, and Z and always understanding this fact of life for based on my experience that life is always at a balance. You, you always mm-hmm. have the option of abundance and you always have the option of lack of. So mm-hmm. it, it all comes down to which one do you choose to look at. Do you choose to live in the moments of lack of, or do you choose to live in the moments of abundance? Ah, I see, I see. And so, in in that case, when we were talking, what kind of role do, what kind of role do the stories that you play over and over in your head yes. play on helping you resolve the trauma that you may be experiencing? Well, that's actually that's a wonderful question, and actually, I'm I, I try to. Look at it from a biosocial perspective. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially understanding, okay, where they got their narratives in the first place. So mm. this narrative that you currently have, 
is it something that you've always had or is it something that um, you have to discover for yourself through life experiences? Mm-hmm. You know, um, how did you discover, you know, this view currently that you have Oleg? I, I think for me, it's, I mean, without a doubt, it started as one story and yes. through life experiences, I was able to identify certain patterns and ways of thought. And also I think exposure to other people and methodologies played a big role in helping me shape this particular narrative because it, but with, with that, there are a lot of skills that you have to come to on an individual level. Um, one of the biggest ones is you have to be able to let go of the ego part of your, of your mind. And that is you're not always, and that's I'm right, you're wrong type of thing, but rather just understand that there are people in this world who know things that you do not know. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't necessarily make them right or wrong. It's just they've lived through a different experience than you have. So for me, it really came down to being open-minded to other people's experiences. And through it, being able to almost identify how their experiences align with mine, mm-hmm. and you, you kind of you almost pick and choose I which see. of them you want within your life and as part of your story. I see. Was that a difficult period for you to actually get to that space where you could be open to other people? I would say yes, because I had a different upbringing to begin with. Uh, I had an upbringing for my first 12 years, which was entirely survival mode. Ah, I see. And so when you live in survival mode and every decision you make has to be calculated, because if not then you have to live with a set of consequences that you may not want to. So if you're having to calculate the the decision of how am I going to get food today? How am I going to find shelter? If you don't achieve those outcomes based on the decisions you make, well, then you're not going to have your basic needs met. I see. And it's during that time that I think when you don't have your basic needs met, it's very difficult to be able to be your full self i see i see and be the most creative that you can be that's a great point mm-hmm. that's a great point Oliver, and that's exactly what um i try to communicate to my patients now a great point in that when you're in survival mode you know all other uh, priorities uh kind of take a s- step back mm-hmm. you know the brain um has to survive and if it feels it's uh, threatened, uh, that becomes its priority, survival, mm-hmm. which means um, planning for how to improve your life is not priority. You just need to survive. You need to put food in your stomach. You need to put shelter over your head. You need to ensure that your body and your mind is safe. Now, once someone can get to a space where survival mode has been addressed, then um, other issues, abstract thinking, planning, creating, um, can be done more effectively. Uh, usually the patients that I see are just trying to survive. Perhaps there is a, you know, they're having flashbacks from a situation that occurred. Perhaps there are a lot of uh, triggers that bring back memories of distress, pain, suffering. Um, and when the body is constantly in this state of alert, like you said, survival, especially mm-hmm. from a young age, then 
it's it's kind of hard to regulate emotion. Mm-hmm. Now, you said something that actually reminded me of the biosocial model, which is we are a product of our environments, our genetics, and our the people that raised us. Mm-hmm. Now, I grew up in an environment where my parents didn't know how to communicate with me. They didn't understand who I was based on my temperament or my personality. That can cause a a problem with fit. You know, mm-hmm. you have parents who have completely different temperaments, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that child can look like a problem to the parent if there's a wrong fit. Let's say my mom was very, very calm and I'm very, very uh, temperamental, right? <laughs> that can create a problem in communication which can begin to cause this kind of slippery slope when it comes to attachment, connection, validation, understanding. Uh, a temperamental child could be asked to go to their room more often than not, uh, could be told they're too sensitive more often than not. Um, this begins to create some kind of conflict with the self. It creates conflict with the ability to self-regulate. It creates conflict with um, in relationships. It creates conflict with the way I view myself. Uh, it creates conflict with the way I, um, uh, I problem solve in my life uh, because I have yet to understand um, myself and also how my environment uh, is influencing my emotions, how my parents are influencing my emotions, how my uh, genetics are influencing my emotions. Mm-hmm. So under, helping the patient get to that place by first calming them down, regulating their emotions, and then start implementing skills necessary to function mm-hmm. as a whole. You mentioned something beautiful, and that is when, when you mentioned the, the factors that influence yourself and who you become, your yes. environment, the genes. I think what's also important within that is we live in a society right now where if you had told me those three factors, a possible question would have come up, and that is, well, what percentage of my environment? What percentage of the genes? And when you think about it that way, you're you're painting a box around you, and mm. you become very focused on the numbers. Well, mm. if it's only five percent of the genes, well, you know, it's not that important. Mm. And then so you focus on the others. So I think it's it, it's for, for me what I've learned is that instead of identifying certain things with statistics just identify them for yourself know that if those are the three factors that impact your life then then focus on them equally or or which whatever is right for you so long story short of what you just said is you have a choice in identifying the things that you have around you at all times absolutely 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 and it, it actually goes a step further um the importance of actually compartmentalizing um, your experiences in mm-hmm. that you understand, okay, at this stage in my life, this is how I view myself, this is how I experience my, 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 my environment, mm-hmm. uh, this is what was going on in my family unit at the time, hence this is why I have these belief systems, so this is why I have these values. Uh, but once again, it's more effective when we can identify uh, the problems mm-hmm. that are simply untenable. Uh, for instance, you know, I meet someone 
and they are unable to identify the changes they want to make in their life. Mm-hmm. It seems so big, okay? You come into my office, I ask them, hey, what do you want to accomplish? And they always say the same thing, I want to be happy. Well, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry I can't help you with your <laughs> desire to be happy, but what I can help you is identify what in your life is causing you stress. Mm. What, kind of, what kind of experiences? Simply identifying areas in your life that has been causing uh, a lot of stresses for you. Mm-hmm. Rather than this whole uh, desire to change everything about your life without really knowing the underlying circumstances prompting behaviors, beliefs, values. Mm-hmm. I want to take a step back a little bit and dive more into the narrative aspect. And the question that I have for you that came to mind as we were talking through it was, when did you have to change your narrative in your life? Well, like, that, was, that was personal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is actually a great question. And, you know, my narrative is uh, constantly changing. Mm-hmm. My narrative has had to change several times. Uh, I will, I will, I will give you, you know, those, you know, seminal points in my life where my narrative had to change. Mm-hmm. My narrative had to change when I came to the U.S. I lived in Nigeria until I was uh, 15 years old, and in Nigeria I had an operating system. I like to call it an operating system. You know, you have this belief that you know everything about Nigerian culture, Nigerian music, Nigerian tra- traditions, Nigerian politics. Uh, the political climate, language, um, religious practices. It's this kind of way of orienting yourself to the world. So I was oriented to being um, Nigerian and being Yoruba, which is my ethnicity, um, and adhering to those traditions and values. And how does that happen? How do, is that just part of the culture as far as how you are taught? Or I'm just trying yeah. to understand because I, I was born in Russia, and I can tell you that ah, my experience was entirely different from yours. Oh, I, I was born and I had to learn the music and just the overall culture um, through other people and also through my lens. But it sounds yeah. like in in your eyes, you you were born with this mindset that you know those things already. Well, I mean, actually, I'm glad that you actually bring that up. That your experience. The thing is, I was born. I was born in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my parents were students in the U.S. and this was back in the 80s. And soon after I was born, they moved to Nigeria. So as far as I could remember, I was a year old when I moved to Nigeria. And um, it was also a learning process. Uh, unbeknownst to me, I mean, I had adopted, you know, American values at such a young age, or it was taught to me by my siblings who were older than me. Mm-hmm. When we were so when I came to Nigeria, I mean, I still... Had these American values, unbeknownst to me at the time, and I had to learn what it meant to be Nigerian, and you know, and that goes down to the music, the culture, mm-hmm. the values. My parents did teach me; they spoke Yoruba to me. They took me to these uh, events that were about African culture, Nigerian culture, uh, but at the same time, they taught me English. They spoke English to me frequently. They spoke all languages to me at a young age. Mm-hmm. During this period, it was when I began to adopt, you know, the values, the cultural beliefs, um, the ideas that represented what uh, a Nigerian citizen would believe in. Mm-hmm. To the U.S. meant 
that had to change. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, that, that, that had to change. And I, I don't know if it was the same thing for you coming to the U.S. from Russia. Mm-hmm. Your values, your beliefs, the way you saw the world and had to change as well. Well, I think it, the other thing that I'm noticing is that it's okay for those things to change. Mm. Because when when you think about yourself as a human being, part of this journey is your ability to evolve. Mm. And that's mm. how we even got here to begin with. As we've mm. evolved from one form to another, from that form to another, and now we're this form and now we're evolving into yes. other forms. We're able to experience other planes of life. And mm-hmm. so it, it's interesting to know that because it states that all of the things that make you, your values, your beliefs, the way you look at certain people, those are areas that it's okay if they evolve. Absolutely, absolutely. If you continue to evolve, they're they're meant to evolve. It's not going to happen where you are elevating and everything else stays stagnant. That just, doesn't, that just doesn't work like that. Well, it, it will cause, um, in what I've observed, I'm sure you've seen this too, this rigidity or inability to change will mm-hmm. in some cases lead to stress more problems in your life uh, coming to the u.s meant you know i couldn't quite communicate in my language anymore i mean mm-hmm. I, not in school i mean i could communicate with my friends but in in, in a school system where everyone spoke english i couldn't quite just use my language i had to you know, adapt and uh, learn English and American English for that matter and American slang. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, my narrative had to change when I joined the military. I joined the military when I was 17. And uh, joining the Marines was also an experience that required a shift in the way I saw the world, the way I saw myself. Hmm. So, these narratives had to keep changing, not only depending on my desires to change, but also. Um, it had to change because of the environment I was in. It had to change because of the people I interacted with. Uh, and like I said, more, most importantly, it had to change in order for me to overcome certain challenges in my life. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about the experience that you had as a Marine because I think in today's day and age, there's a lot of stigma when it comes to military. Yes. And I, I think it's important to note a, the decision of why you chose to become a Marine? Like, what at that time, knowing what you what you knew, how did becoming a Marine help you find yourself and solve the problems you had at hand? Well, you know, Oleg, I'm still trying to figure out why I tortured myself by joining the Marines. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out why I did that to myself. Um, the only answer I have so far is I grew up in a military environment. So once again, we're talking about narratives. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to military school at a very young age. Uh, I went to an army school at a young age, and I went to an Air Force school uh, for high school. This was back in Nigeria. My mother was kind of had friends who were involved in the military, and I was kind of surrounded by this kind of environment. So it was only natural, unbeknownst to me at the time, because I never thought I would be a Marine. Mm-hmm. I was, something happened and uh, I identified with their, you know, I identified with what they represented, which was honor, courage, and commitment. 
Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be a part of that. The few, the proud, the Marines. I just like that slogan. Mm. I like that narrative. And I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to be a few, part of the few, the proud. And um, I did my homework, find out what they had to do. And I did, I believe, whatever it took to be a part of this institution. Now, after being in this institution, I was radically changed by the events that happened. Mm-hmm. As we all know, uh, 9-11 happened. Mm-hmm. I was in Marines at the time, and that also radically changed my narrative of the world. Well, you know, as a 21-year-old who thinks joining the military is just about going to college and having fun, uh, I was <laughs> I wasn't really prepared for the the possibility, even though I was groomed for the possibility. You never really think it's going to happen until it's actually happening. Mm-hmm. And it was very very surreal, but it also changed the way I saw the role I played when it come came to be in the Marine. Mm. And it also helped me identify what was more important in my life during that period. Mm-hmm. Which I'm assuming was your community, family, and everyone else that surrounded you. All of the living things, right? Exactly. You said you hit the nail on the head. I wasn't going to say anything, but you hit the nail on the head. (laughs) How how did you? How did you parse that out? What made you say that? Well, I I think based on my experience. Yes. We live in the world where there are so many possessions and things that surround us. But really, when you break it down as far as what provides value, mm-hmm. it's connections to other people. Oh, yeah. uh, I've always believed that when you when you have problems at hand, yes. it's not the latest iPhone that solves the problem or the MacBook or the amount of money. It's the people. It's the people that oftentimes created the problem to begin with. I see, I see. And so it really just comes down. For me, it's it came to a realization of, well, if it's people that create most problems, but then also are able to solve more, more most problems, mm. then it really just comes down to your ability to invite other people into your life mm. and being well, open. And but with that, there's there, I think it's like an onion. There are a lot of things that you have to peel off before you can get to this point where you can have a honest conversation with the person. And I think the very first step of it all is to be able to just like we said, recognize there's a problem in hand, but then there's a huge level of courage that develops. I remember I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, uh, one of our most recent podcast guests, and he was telling me about a time when he had struggled financially to a point where he couldn't pay his bill a month, couldn't pay rent. And so he had made a promise to himself to not go to his parents again because he's done that already. So he ended up going to his brother and he asked him for help. And what was interesting was that I remember I was sitting there and I can definitely relate because I've definitely hit moments like that in my life. Mm. And I think you're you're always bound to hit a great adversity when you are right before you're bound to hit a great success. Mm. Mm. It, it just doesn't it's it doesn't work as at least based on my life it doesn't work where you're always on the uphill climb and then you get the thing you always you always you start off but then boom you drop and then you drop again and then you drop again and then you you finally i think start to understand and recognize patterns because as i'm sure you can relate some of the lessons that you've learned in life 
I think they are meant to take you through multiple cycles before you understand that lesson. Yes, yes. Because they're very complex situations. And our, and our brain can only understand so much at any given moment due to the amount of information that we have. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, it's very uh, important to kind of recognize that, that life does, um, you know, present you with challenges uh, that if you are able to recognize, uh, you can meet challenges effectively, appropriately, and learn and grow from it. Mm -hmm. uh, however, you said something very critical, and it's about being able to be in that space to recognize it. For instance, if uh, you had the tools necessary to mm -hmm. recognize the challenges in your life and what they represent and the opportunities within these challenges, an opportunity for growth, change, evolution, adaptability. If you can recognize that, then perhaps you'd be more effective at problem solving. Mm -hmm. uh, however, uh, not being able to recognize it causes um, issues. It can cause a lot of confusion. Uh, it can cause us to withdraw if it, if it seems too overwhelming. Mm -hmm. uh, in my military experience, one of the things that I recognized uh, kind of late, this was towards, towards me getting out, Mm -hmm. was acceptance. <laughs> Just recognizing that, you know what, I can't really fight the system. I had an issue with authority. I had problems being told what to do. Mm -hmm. And if the nature of the military is, you know, capitulating, mm -hmm. accepting that, listen, you're powerless in this situation, do what you are, what you sign on for. And if I was able to identify that early on in my military career, it would have probably been... Uh, more joyous I've been more open to more experiences uh, some of those experiences I mean scared me mm -hmm. just to be honest scared me some of those things they asked me to do are very very scary uh, I kept forgetting you know what I signed on for this you know I think acceptance has a role to play uh, when it comes to the confrontation that you speak of the courage that you speak of mm -hmm. Uh, when it comes to uh, dealing with challenges in one's life. Mm -hmm. Courage after accepting, recognizing reality for what it is. Oh, it becomes a very powerful tool. And I think the, the other thing that I, I came across a quote this morning, and I'm going to read this to you, and it is, Life has no meaning. Each mm. of us has meaning, and we bring it to life. Mm. It is mm. a waste to be asking the question of what is the meaning of life when mm. you are the answer. Wow. And it, said? Th this was a, I'm not sure it's anonymous. And yeah. it's, um, it's so interesting because we go through life asking that question, well, what is the meaning of this? What is the meaning of life, especially during times of adversity? But really, you are the one that gets to define the meaning. Hmm. And I, I think for me, the other thing that I've learned for myself is that when I realized that that was true, that I was the one that was able to define my own life and create meaning from it, it was during that time that I began to understand that everything happens for a reason. Because you have a choice to give a reason to an experience. You know, I like the fact that you brought that up. It's actually funny because my brother and I were talking about that very topic about purpose. Mm-hmm. And he was asking about purpose and my view on purpose. And I said, what's the point? Mm -hmm. 
what's the point of seeking purpose when you can just deal with the challenges in your life right now? You know, there are challenges in your life right now. Seeking purpose can be misleading. Yes. In that, you are, by the way, it's a narrative, meaning purpose. This narrative that there's something that you should be doing rather than confronting the challenges in your life right now, being mindful, being in the moment right now. Uh, yes, seeking meaning can be very, very, very confusing and also cause more stresses in your life because not many people feel like they've found some kind of meaning. Mm -hmm. But they get trapped into the search for meaning, you know, which causes suffering, the non-acceptance of the reality of their life and the addressing of the challenges in their lives right now, instead mm -hmm. of looking towards the future or towards the past. Mm -hmm. um, well, yes, I actually subscribe to that notion. Um, not a search for meaning, but a search for self. Mm -hmm. And that's why with, with what you just said, it's interesting for me, I've been able to identify it as far as, well, if something happens, it, it really just came down to being able to recognize that as is, mm -hmm. and then just move forward. I see. You, you recognize that you don't have the money right? and then you move forward on creating a plan to generate that. I see. You recognize I see. that you don't have X, Y, and Z. Well, so it's, it's, it almost, for me, it, it came down to knowing what there is, but then always being able to maintain a possibility mindset. I see. I see. Because I think that at the end of the day, you have to have some hope. You have to have some sense of possibility. I mean, that's that's how we go through life. Yes. We're able to live in the now, and we're able to accept the past that has happened. But the future, it's 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 all imagination. Mm. We have no idea what's bound to happen the next minute, even the next second. Mm. It's 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 all based on the world that we continuously to create in our minds. Absolutely, absolutely. If I continue to create a world based on this dialogue and that is i i choose to take this conversation in one direction or another direction well there's no way of knowing what that's going to evolve into because you're also a variable that i can't control absolutely, absolutely. but it's 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 i i like what you just said in regard to that it's most times we we look at purpose and we say well what is the purpose of this and we go through our whole life trying to define it rather than just living in the moment right. and i think really just understanding what is what is that greater thing and it varies per person for me I, that greater thing is serving other people I see, I see. and so it, once i was able to identify that then it, this whole notion of seeking after that larger purpose or being able to put a label on it i just mm. said well if i'm here to serve others why don't i just start serving them now mm. That that had value to you, right? Yeah. Is that of great value to you? I see. Yeah. How did you develop that? This value of serving others. From past experience, past experience of of living in times where I felt that there were elements that were missing as part of that service, and also I know that when I was younger, my sister, who was kind of my primary um, caregiver for a good portion of my life because our mom was an alcoholic and so she wasn't able to step into a position where she provided us um, some uh, parenting 
at that time. Yes. So my sister really taught me what it meant to care after other people and look <laughs> after someone and give them the last bowl of food and that last hug and mm. be that sense of comfort when things aren't going well. When you're, when you're living in a lack of, it's a very difficult thing to be able to operate in. And so it, she was able to somehow recognize that and almost help me develop this mindset that it's going to be okay. I see. I Even see. when I had nothing. Do you think you would have developed this value to take care of others if you hadn't gone through that experience? So. That's hard to say. And I don't think there is a way to know that exactly. But hypothetically speaking, I don't think I would have been. Because I, I think your experience shape who you become. Exactly. exactly. And as part of that, there is a huge level of awareness that has to happen. Because, And that's why I firmly believe that age is just a number. <laughs> when I was born... I didn't get to define that I was that I'm starting with one. Mm. Why could not why could I not have started at thirty or forty or fifty? So the reason why I think age is just a number is because you might have lived through thirty six years of your life and I might have lived through twenty six. But I might have been able to identify the twenty six years and you may not have, and vice versa. So it goes back to how much of your experience, lived experience are you actually processing and reflecting upon and gaining some of these insights and tools from? Because it, as you know, and as most of us know, it, it's life is a balance. So you're mm. going to have people that understand their experiences and you're going to have people that go through life and may not be able to understand them at all. Absolutely. Because Absolutely. That, that's why there's it's such a low number of people who actually take a step back and reflect mm. upon their lived experiences. Well, you know, I consider, for me personally, uh, I consider reflection quite a luxury. If you are able to keep the wolves at bay long enough, right? If mm -hmm. you're in an environment that will allow you to, to give you, just allow you to reflect. Mm -hmm. <laughs> luxury of reflecting. Uh, one may be able to be more um, purposeful about challenging the issues in their life. Now, you said something about, you know, how you develop this um, desire to give back. Mm -hmm. And your answer was, you know, there's no way to know if your personal experiences could have influenced this desire in one way or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I thought that was very, very interesting. And I, I also believe it's something that I keep in mind when I'm working with uh, people struggling in certain areas of their lives. The influence of their background mm -hmm. and if they could decide, you know, if they could have agency, if they could recognize the, the influence of their past and they had agency to make change in their lives, what would they do? Mm -hmm. you know, independent trauma in their lives, independent of their past. What do they want their life to look like? You know, mm -hmm. That quality. So they can start living some living a purposeful life. Not a life of purpose, but a purposeful life. Something with intention. Right? And this kind of builds competence, builds self-esteem. Mm -hmm. 
it's reinforcing seeing the kind of work that you're doing with your bare hands or with your mind materializing before you. Mm -hmm. so, so I'm curious to know with that, because a lot of it goes back to the power of choice and then reframing the situation. Yes. So with, with knowing those two things, I'm curious to know, is there a problem that you cannot solve in this lifetime? Is there a problem you cannot solve? If you know that you have always, you always have a choice mm. and you have the power to reframe the situation into the polar opposite of it. So if you're experiencing something negative through different practices, you can turn that into a positive. Yes. So yes, yes. when it comes to problems that we experience in our lives, are there areas that we cannot solve? Or do mm -hmm. we always have a choice and the possibility? Like, I actually like the way you asked that question. Is there a problem you cannot solve? I would say reframing what a problem is would mm -hmm. probably get you further. Just reframing it. You know, what is this? What does this represent for me in my life right now? Um, is this uh, an opportunity for growth? Uh, do I actually have the resources to address this issue? And if I don't have the resources, do I have the ability to tolerate this quote-unquote problem? Mm -hmm. you know? uh, so I think it's about reframing uh, what you consider a problem. And you can always do that. Right, you can always reframe the issue. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if we can always solve the problem because mm. there's a lot of factors. Mm -hmm. However, can you always reframe the problem? Mm -hmm. Yes, you can always reframe it, and perhaps that would give you um, more alternatives for growth. Mm -hmm. Right? If I see there's a problem, it could be it could lead to just this one way of looking at the issue. If I reframe it, it gives me alternatives. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It gives me alternatives. It gives me options. I can start looking at different creative ways to address the issue. Which become your tools Precisely. and resources. Exactly. Exactly. So, yes, I think one can always reframe, which, you know, offers opportunity to look at the problem, quote unquote, problem in creative and different ways. Uh, is there a problem that cannot be solved? I mean, can we solve all problems? I, I don't believe so. I do believe we can always reframe the issue, though. I do believe that. Mm -hmm. It's, I, I love that. And so one of the things that I wanted to do as part of this whole narrative aspect is actually dive more into that experience because I know of at least a handful of people who are in the process of considering of going into the military. I see. I see. And I think based on the conversation that I had with you the last time, I wanted to kind of dive into that and really analyze this whole special contract that you spoke of so oh, that right. those who are listening might be aware of assignments like that and right. tap into different ways. So I remember when you and I had the first conversation, you yes. had mentioned that one of the things you actually chose during that phase of your life was to pursue a special contract. Yes. In yes. military. So can you tell us a little bit more about that and how you came to terms or how you actually found out information on that? Because based on my understanding, it wasn't as publicly available as, as it maybe should have been. Right, right. Well, active, what I did, uh, and this is during, this was during, uh, uh, 
Operation Iraqi Freedom, Operation mm-hmm. Enduring Freedom. Uh, this was, what I got was active duty special work. That was the term that was used. And it was temporary duty, and it was specific to, uh, you know, operations in Iraq and Afghanistan at the time. Um, it, it's not always available. It's available uh, under special circumstances. Mm-hmm. In my case, it was offered to me under a special circumstance. Before that, uh, I was just serving my regular contract, you know, four years in the military. But after the war happened, I got recalled uh, twice. And to get the kind of orders that I wanted and that my command at the time wanted, uh, they offered me a special uh, contract, which mm-hmm. meant I, could, I couldn't be deployed. At the time, I could not be deployed. Now, is this available to everyone? I'm not certain. Uh, like I said, each branch is different. I was in the Marines at the time, and it was during um, wartime. Mm. I'm not sure if it's available um, during peacetime. However, it was available during wartime. Mm-hmm. It's called active duty special work for those people interested in looking more into it. Mm-hmm. How did going in how did becoming a marine under a special contract impact your experience on the field because Uh, i know one of the things that you told me is that as part of that contract you weren't able to go into combat that is correct yeah so due to that did you end up developing form of guilt when relating with your fellow marines who were in combat and who were sharing these stories and if so how did you deal with that well you know, I never thought I would ex- experience this phenomenon, but uh, yes, I did feel guilty. You know, I don't, I don't know if it's a var- variation of survivor's guilt, mm-hmm. but uh, having a special contract uh, that attaches you to a certain job while you watch all your friends uh, go to Iraq um, into the face of danger, I mean, <laughs> I felt I dodged a bullet, no pun intended. <laughs> You know, and I wanted to, you know, not put myself in danger, but I wanted to be, I wanted to share that camaraderie with them. I wanted to be out there with my friends. I wanted to, uh, I didn't want to miss out on the action uh, because I had some special contract. Now, I could have uh, possibly, you know, spoken to someone about, you know, uh, shredding the contract. However, I was actually needed in that position. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, and they needed someone that knew what I knew at the time in that position, working for the colonel uh, at my command. And I was the only one who had the set of skills that I that that I held. So I took the position. I took the billet. But I did feel guilt because I did hear stories of you know um, my friends getting shot at, um, ordinances exploding every day. Uh, these horror stories. And I felt, for lack of a better word, left out. Mm-hmm. I had this desire to be out there. I just couldn't. And there was a lot of guilt that came with that. Mm-hmm. A lot of guilt. What ended up happening when you were able to return to this part of the world, the more well, peaceful side? Like, I'm, I'm assuming that one of the reasons why you end up going into the field of PTSD yes, is yes. somewhat related to your own personal experience and, and the challenges that you went through. Precisely, precisely, Ole. 
uh, one of the things that I did uh, swear to myself was that I would give back, specifically to Marines. Now, most of my clientele are currently sailors, but we're all brothers and sisters in arms. And um, I swore to myself I was going to give back, so I focused on studying PTSD. Obviously, I went to college. Then I got my doctorate in psychology, and for my dissertation, it was focused on research. And my research was focused on um, veterans who went to combat and came back without PTSD. That was what my research was focused on. And I was interested in seeing uh, what contributed to their resilience or their state of mind during this period in Iraq and Afghanistan, mm -hmm. or even Syria. Uh, so that was my way of giving back, and I continue to work with veterans uh, with and without PTSD uh, as a way to give back um, as much as I can to the organization that made me who I am today. Mm. What were some of the challenges that you went through as far as, like, you know, when it comes to trauma and being able to process it in today's world? Because yeah. I know that I have a friend, of, one of my friends, he served, I don't think he was a Marine, I don't remember the exact division, but he served for two to three years, and he mm -hmm. actually ended up going on one to two tours, and he said that when he came back, it was extremely challenging to be able to see people in a different way, because he saw a polar opposite view mm -hmm. of humanity. When you were, when you, and I can't speak to this directly, I don't have the experience, but Supposedly, when he came to a position or where he saw his friends do it, where you had to take a child's life because the, ch the child was viewed as danger. Oh How does that translate into the world? Now, I know that you don't have exact experience with combat, but I'm sure that there are elements of your journey as a Marine you can relate to when you came back into the world and did you look at people differently? And if so, like what, what were some of those things and triggers that might've come into your life? You know, you, you know, when you just said that, let me, let me tell you what I just experienced. I felt that literally in my chest when you said that mm -hmm. my body's literally reacting to that statement that you just made. Mm -hmm. Um, about a Marine uh, having to take a child that was just, I'm trying to imagine being in that situation. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just, it's unfortunate. Mm -hmm. And you know, we talk about this operating system and in combat, that is your operating system. Yeah. Your operating system is you are at war. Now, the, the problem is you come back to the United States and this operating system has not been updated. Correct. Essentially, a bunch of glitches, a lot of bugs that need to be ironed out. And, you know, the brain needs to reconcile experiencing combat with experiencing normalcy. But it's not, it's not that easy. Mm -hmm. that's, when an event like that happens, for instance, PTSD, your hypervigilance takes over. Your sense of um, safety is priority. And anything can be triggering, even... Faces, mean faces can be triggering. Mm -hmm. You know, um, open spaces can be triggering. Uh, loud noises can be triggering. Uh, what I try to do, and this is to answer your question, how I uh, address these issues is with 
therapy, exposure therapy in a safe environment, safe and controlled environment, or cognitive processing therapy, which is about readjusting their narrative, um, realigning their narrative, recalibrating the narrative. Uh, for me, um, you know, being in the military was not a traumatic experience. Losing friends was the painful part. Mm. And, and for me, recalibrating, recognizing Oleg, and this, is, this was difficult, mm-hmm. recognizing, you know what, this is what we signed up for. You know, this is what we signed up for. This is the reality of the nature of our job. This is what we signed up for. And they made it clear to us over and over and over again, you are number one first, a rifleman, which means your life could be in danger. This is what you signed up for. Um, all other circumstances are out of our control when we are serving the military. So I try to make peace with it and recognize that you know, this is what we signed up for. And um, one way or the other, we're bound to uh, be in front of be in a dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. The treatment is about exposing ourselves to those uncomfortable experiences, those uncomfortable thoughts, uh, those uncomfortable urges, and regulating at the same time, in vivo, in the moment, regulating in the moment, um, just to bring some kind of balance to the nervous system. Mm-hmm. So how do you come to terms with that mindset? Because I'm trying to put myself in your shoes and if I'm asked a question or I'm being explained the fact that you are going to put your life out there for other people, yeah. yes. it may mean that you don't come back. Yes. How yes. do you how do you stay in that mindset of the decision you had made to begin with? Mm. Because I I don't have I guess what I'm trying to ask is is everyone capable of being in that mindset oh, God, that, that's, you see I'm having this reaction to it because I'm, I'm thinking about my state of mind when I signed those papers mm-hmm. you know when you're 17 you think you're untouchable so that never crossed my mind you know, I never thought that I would you know lose my life in the military mm-hmm. and you know a lot of people are very young when they join the military so we, we, we generally feel untouchable and invincible. So it is hard to accept. Just to be quite frank with you, it's, it's a hard notion to accept that um, you would probably not make it back from a, a, a combat zone. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we can imagine that we can possibly die, but we don't think it's going to be us. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it'll be someone else. Uh, but like I said earlier, radical acceptance goes a long way radically accepting that okay this is my life these are the possibilities how do I ensure that I don't lose my life while accepting it it could be a possibility but how can I prepare myself to reduce the chances mm-hmm. of exposed to, to, to physical harm that's one the other aspect is kind of tolerating emotionally tolerating the notion that you know what I could in fact you know, so how do I do things to improve the quality of my life? You know, there are things to do to improve the quality of my life, which mm-hmm. is what I did in the Marines. You know, I did things to improve the quality of my life. I did things to keep myself out of harm's way as much as I could. Obviously, I got a contract. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, 
I went to school. I, I spent time with people that um, had substance and who shared my values. Mm-hmm. That was how I improved the experience of being a Marine because it's not, sometimes it's not fun for people. It's not easy for others. Uh, however, it was something that I really enjoyed while I was in. Hmm. It's a very fascinating view because I'm I'm sitting here and I'm trying to once again put myself in your shoes and really justify that for myself that if I were to make a similar decision in signing a contract where I'm I'm having to go into an environment like that. Yes, yes. How do you wh- which of the elements that you just mentioned do you let as the kind of guiding force? You know, yes. is it the fact that it's well, yes, I may die, but if I prepare, if I train well enough, if I surround myself with other people, then you kind of, I guess, let those options outweigh the possibility of possibly losing your life. Precisely. You said that perfectly. Um, I couldn't have said it better. You said it actually better than how I said it. <laughs> it and I'm not a Marine. <laughs> better than I said it because that is an example of radical acceptance. And it's, okay, this is the kind of job I have the possibility I could possibly die. Okay, what can I do to reduce my chances of that happening? How do I problem solve the real possibility that I could in fact lose my life? Mm-hmm. And the other aspect is, well, it's it's anxiety provoking. What can I do to reduce this anxiety? How can I improve my emotions, improve my mood uh, while I tolerate the real life existential crisis of being alive in a combat zone? Mm-hmm. Uh, how that works in the clinical sense, not even in the clinical sense, in my daily life, is radically accepting that a problem in my life needs to be addressed. So I can be miserable, I can be sad, I can avoid it all day, I can complain all day, I can drink all day. Mm-hmm. The problem remains. The problem remains. Which is what happens in Marines. You know, a lot of people are miserable and uh, afraid and anxious, as they should. However, it doesn't solve the problem of being in the military. Mm-hmm. It doesn't the challenge of being in the military. So yes, Oleg, yes, radical acceptance allows one to accept the reality of their situation. Not like it, that's the key. Mm-hmm. Like it. I don't have to like what I'm radically accepting, but I recognize that it can have a significant impact on my life to solve these problems in the moment. Very interesting because it it just makes me think that there is, it's like an environment within the environment or a problem within the problem. You think you're going out there to win a war, which uh, I I don't really understand what that means, to to be honest with you. It's so funny when you say it like that, win a war. (laughs) I mean, that's our our perception. We go to war and... Right. The, the way that we understand it as a public, well, we're either there to win it or we lost it. But really, it's like, how, right. how do you even justify the two? I know. I and, know. But really, it's like, you know, you go into it with knowing that as a possible problem to solve. But really, it's like there is a problem within the problem. And that is just the the whole military experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, even when you aren't in combat, I'm sure That's you've true. experienced emotions the fear the possible you know different losses different things that have triggered certain emotions so it's it's very interesting to look at that from that point of view 
absolutely. I didn't I didn't see it like that, but I I, I actually see your point. The problem within the problem, mm-hmm. and the problem is the problem of you as a human being. Yeah. Not just as an automaton in the military, but you as a human being. Mm-hmm. So I certainly see your point. It is a problem, but once again. It always goes back to can I actually see it as a problem? Yeah. You know, do I actually recognize that there is something that needs to be addressed? Mm-hmm. And reframing it. Precisely. Mm-hmm. Exactly. How do you do you are you able to get into those spaces for yourself? The spaces of awareness where you recognize, okay, this is the problem that I need to solve first in order to solve the bigger problem. Most times. Yeah, most times I'm able to take a step back and really try and break it down to the root yes, of what yes. is actually causing it. Because what I've learned on my, based on my experience is that a lot of the problems you experience in hand are actually mm-hmm. triggers from somewhere else. The, uh-huh. the root is not, very rarely is the root here. Uh-huh. It's always the surface level. I mean, when you, when you talk about some of the major cornerstones that we have within our lives, let's speak mm-hmm. finances, for example, if you are having a financial problem right now, well, that's not really the problem. The mm. problem is the spending in areas which you shouldn't have spent the money in. The problem is possibly not having enough due to the number of hours you work per week, so there's not a equilibrium that happens. And so it's it's it really it always stems beyond what's at hand. I mean, when you think about stress and anxiety, it's it's not because your dog is not walking in the rut with you or constantly tugging, he's not the problem. It's something else that triggered that during the right. day. And so right. that living being is just a way for you to almost push that problem out there I see. and, and I see. make your brain think that you have found a solution. I see, I see, I see. I like so, that explanation of it. Mm-hmm. It's the underlying factors underlying factors mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i like that approach so that so you recognize the underlying factors and then you begin to problem solve then you begin to problem solve yes okay. Okay. which it 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 becomes a little bit harder because you're having to go back so much mm. and that's why i i think it's important or it was important for me and, and it still is to be able to reflect on the journey throughout as mm. as often as you can because when you're having to go back in life to figure out a problem that's causing your current problem at hand, if you haven't reflected, you don't know the takeaways. You don't know the lessons. And so you're having to build a toolkit from a place where you don't even understand I see, I what see. that problem was and how you might have solved it along the way that served as temporary solutions before you got here. So mm-hmm. you solved it temporarily, and then you got here. Well, now you have to solve it for real. There's no temporary out anymore. <laughs> you have to solve this. So it, for me, it really just – that's why I've, I be, I've become a lot more grounded, and mm. I, I try my best to be able to reflect on a lot of the decisions and the things that happen and really define. That's why I said earlier there's a reason for everything that happens in life, and that's because I choose to look at it that way. I choose to put a reason to the experiences that happen because they help me better identify and create meaning from the experiences. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. What do you think 
of someone who is unwilling to change or who is unwilling to problem solve? What if you encounter someone who is unwilling to change, unwilling to problem solve? How do you address that? Well, I think the first step is to be able to identify that that's something you are in the position of. Mm. So it goes back to self-awareness, but with that, that's also a skill that gets acquired over time. Right. I don't think you are born with this abundance of self-awareness that is accessible to you. Right. right. I think the answers are always within you. So you have the tools within you. It's all about tapping into those tools through your lens and through the lenses of other people. So the conversation I have with you is really a conversation that I'm having with a version of myself that I don't get to have a conversation with. I love that. I love that. Conversation that I have with someone else may be entirely different because it's exposing me to a to a part of myself that I don't get to access. So yourself is always mold it's it's made up of thousands and thousands of versions. Mm-hmm. So it's it, it I think it comes down to being able to if you can't find the inner dialogue within, mm-hmm. you have to open up that to other people and invite other people in to hopefully help you discover that inner dialogue. I see. I see. You know, I think what you said about um, having the ability to be aware of it in the first place uh, will go a long way. You know, Mm -hmm. what I've encountered, and I'm sure you've encountered this, is that very issue when we meet people that are not willing to change. Because I I learned this, and Mm -hmm. this is something recent. I have the desire to help. And then you meet people that are not willing. Yeah. And uh, I'm very, very curious about how others have approached this problem. How I have, I've approached the issue yeah. is with awareness, like you said. And this time, choice. not a choice, but this time choosing, choosing your situation. Mm-hmm. Saying to myself, you know what? I, I, I don't want to change. I choose to be miserable. Yes. I choose it. And, yes. and I don't mean this in a coy way. I mean literally giving yourself agency uh, to remain in that situation mm-hmm. in the first place. So rather than you know listening to your parents and your friends telling you to change, claiming agency and saying, you know, I refuse to change. And going a step further and saying, not only do I refuse to change, I am okay with the consequences. Yeah. I am okay with the misery. <laughs> yeah that will happen as a result of remaining the same. And I don't think people are willing to stay in that condition. And, and some of the choices are difficult because, to give you an example, one of the things that you have to do as a nonprofit organization like ours is sometimes you have to be able to raise money I see. to continue with your work. So, and a lot of those efforts are typically done through donations. I see. So you can make the choice of identifying a target amount that you need and then putting together a plan for how you're going to attain that. Reaching out to people in X, Y, and Z modes, in mediums, this is the messaging, this is how I want to be viewed, pivoting. So you make those choices, but what's important is that during a journey like that, your choices oftentimes don't... um, equal the exact results because there's the unknown 
I can reach out to you and say, Ola, I need help with this. Can you donate X number of dollars? Well, yes, it's a choice that I made, but then there's the unknown variable, and that right. is you. Are you in right. a position to do that? Are you right. in the giving mindset to do that? Do you right. have a relationship with me? Right. Do you believe in what I'm doing? Do you believe in me? Right. So there are a lot of things that you go through. And so with, with that said, I think that even though you do have a choice, there are certain things that you have to be, that I have to be able to look for as far as long-term gratification and short-term. Mm -hmm. I see. I see. Okay. okay. Wait, sir, you go to a grocery store and you buy a banana. I mm. think that's a short term because mm. it's immediately met. Right. You right. have it in your hand. You can eat it right there. Right. You go to a bank. You ask for a loan. It takes days. Whole different process. Right. Whole different process. So right. then you're 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 having to sit there and really work through your thoughts. Did I get it? Did I say the right stuff? Do I have the right, right documents? So, it, but you at the end of the day, I think you do have a choice, and as long as you're willing to accept that, then that's when you're able to identify and really work through a lot of the problems. And speaking of a person who's not willing to change, <laughs> it's because they haven't made the choice. I see. I see. And change is change is hard. Oof. Because it's the, abstract. One of the hardest things to do. And you, you don't you don't really know what it's going to require of you. And that's the mm. hardest part, I think, is living with the unknown. Mm. When you think, yeah. Oh, I want to change my life. I want to have more money. Well, yeah. easier said than done. <laughs> I want to have a thousand more dollars. Well think about the journey that you have to go through in order Absolutely. to get that. The number of hours that you have to put in, the number of clients you have to see. Not the number of interactions, which ultimately are going to change you as well. Absolutely, absolutely, you're right. I mean, I mean, even just about change being difficult, even you know, evolutionarily, uh, even though we want to change, the brain also wants to conserve energy. Yes. <laughs> so anything yes. that has to do with effort could be challenging. Not only does it want to conserve energy, uh, it wants to maintain a balance. And change is sometimes throwing things off balance. So your very nature as a human being is <laughs> in some ways working against you Yeah. Uh, uh, when it comes to changing. So yes, absolutely. Change can be very, very difficult. But then again, you speak to the, the long-term values, the long-term rewards, the long-term consequences of resilience, change, and, and commitment. And they can be very, very rewarding. Um, if we are able to meet the challenge of change. Mm -hmm. Great point. Great point. I'm glad that you said that. Final thought for today's episode, and that is yes. who or what are you grateful for in life? Uh, who am I grateful for? Um, huh. Okay. I could be here all day, really. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm truly grateful for my, um, my parents, my siblings, um, and the influence they have on me on a daily basis. I'm grateful for the unknowns that keep me alive. You know? mm. I'm grateful uh, for the challenges that I've been able to meet and overcome. 
Uh, I'm grateful to be alive. I'm grateful for the human experiences, no matter how painful they've been. It's allowed me to see versions of myself I would have otherwise never met. So all in all, I'm grateful on uh, two accounts. I'm grateful for my family, my direct family, my, my, my parents, my siblings. I'm grateful for my closest friends. I'm grateful for, um, you know, someone in my life currently. And I'm also grateful for the unknowns, just being alive. Mm -hmm. Because it's such an experience. It's it's mind-blowing. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm just grateful for being, period. What about you? That's amazing. I'm grateful to be alive mm. because, and I just had this realiza realization recently, mm. I didn't really understand the life that life took mm. before it got to me. And that is there was a possibility that I may not have been alive. Think about of all of the possible lives that didn't make it. Absolutely. And in it, it's just, it speaks volumes when you speak about why you are here mm -hmm. and really just accepting yourself and saying, I am enough. Mm -hmm. I'm grateful for the people that are in my life because I think there were times in my life where I used to take that for granted, mm. mainly because I was able to reflect on my past and I saw the person yesterday and I'm seeing this person today. And therefore, the thought is, well, I'm going to see them tomorrow. But tomorrow is not guaranteed. Next minute is not guaranteed. So in knowing that, it helped me better understand that if I'm having a thought that I want to share, a conversation that I want to start, a compliment that I want to give, it's better to do it now. Mm, I see. I see. And so it, it made me... A, more appreciative of humans because mm -hmm. I think in most cases we do take them for granted. We take each other for granted because everywhere we go, there is at least one. Mm. Mm. <laughs> everywhere we go. It's yeah, like a that... chair. You, you, it, and that's why I think self-awareness is so interesting because you walk into a room, you see a chair, you go into another room, you see a different type of chair, but you categorize that, oh, it's just a chair. Mm. Very rarely do you look at the design. Same thing with human beings. You walk into one spot, oh, human. Walk into another, another human. I know, I know. And that's why I think we have a lot of the dialogues that happen, and that is conversations that are not intentional. Mm. You go into a grocery store, you get asked the question of how are you, you answer, but you know that person has already moved on from you. They're already mm -hmm. asking the same question to the next past, next customer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, and then it, it becomes automated. That's that's heavy. That's deep. That's great observation. People, we will lose track of the value. That's good. Observation. And we'll lose track of the part that we all have our meaning. And mm -hmm. the fact that going back to the earlier point that what is the meaning of life? The meaning of life is whatever meaning you choose to create for it. Mm, mm. And so if you live with that in mind, then, and other people live with that in mind, 
that's when you're always able to live in abundance. Mm. You know, I hope there's going to be a part two to this because I have so much to say to what you just said. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Ola, how how do people find you? What are some of the things that you have coming up? I know that you're based in San Diego. Yes, I am based in San Diego. For those that want to connect and learn more about your work, what are some of the best ways to do that? Well, you can find me online. Uh, search Dr. Ola Denrani. Uh, you can find me via my email, dr.olasyke at gmail.com. I'm creating a social media presence right now, so that will be uh, coming at a later time. Awesome. But I can find online, certainly. Just search my name. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing this, and thank you for the, yes. ter- the journey that you took me through and the, the yeah. different narrative that you've, been, yeah. that you've helped me create around mm. some of these areas that I didn't know much about. So I, I'm grateful for that. So thank you. I'm honored. I'm honored. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't done so already, feel free to subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you can receive all of the latest episodes, featured stand-up and speak-up stories, and ways you can be involved with Overcoming Odds. Once again, thank you for listening, and we'll look forward to having you next week.